Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. We're about to start. Hello, welcome back. Hi. Welcome back to... Fan- Uh-oh, why is it... Why am I getting feedback here? Sorry. Welcome back to... Fantastic... Fic- it's still doing it. I can hear it. Fantastic Fiction at KGB. That's better. Well, it's better leave it because it's going to go for someone else. I'm just, you know, doesn't matter. I want to make sure that it's tall enough for John. Anyway, welcome back. Um, our second reader tonight is John Langan, who is the author of two novels, The Fisherman and House of Windows. He's also published two collections, The White Carnivorous Sky and Other Monstrous Geographies, and Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters. With Paul Tremblay, he co-edited Creatures, 30 Years of Monsters. He's one of the founders of the Shirley Jackson Awards and currently reviews horror and dark fantasy for Locust Magazine. New and forthcoming stories are in Children of Lovecraft, The Madness of Dr. Caligari, The Mammoth Book of Cthulhu, Swords versus Cthulhu, and Children of Glockaki? Glockaki. Well, it's got a a thing there. All right, a apostrophe, a Glocky, whatever. Um, and also, actually, if he ever finishes it, Hallow's Eve. <coughs> In March of 2017, his third collection of stories, I don't know how to pronounce it, Sapphira or Sephira? Sephira and Other Betrayals will be published by Hippocampus Press. John Langan lives, teaches, and teaches... Boy, someone just... This is like... We left out... There are left out words, there are left out words here, and I'm sure we didn't do that when we did the PR release. Anyway, I hope not. Anyway, okay. John Langan lives and teaches classes in... Oh, I see what I cut out. Okay, he lives in... Uh, <laughs> he lives near New Paul's. All right, forget that part. All right. He, <laughs> he, <laughs> forget that part. John Langan teaches classes in creative writing and Gothic literature at SUNY New Paul's. He and his son, right, both earned their yep. black belts in karate. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Ellen. All right, now it's my turn. Hello? How's that? Okay, good. So I'd like to to thank Ellen and uh, and Matt slash Dave for uh, <laughs> for uh, for having me here uh, yet again. Um, this was one of the uh, first places I read at uh, when I started publishing my fiction. And um, sometimes you read at a place and you only realize afterwards, holy cow, that was a great opportunity. That was amazing. 
Um, and it was uh, only afterwards that I realized what a, a privilege it was to, to read here. And every time I come back here, I, I feel ever more grateful to, uh, to be reading to, to you guys. And I'm always very grateful and very thankful um, to all of you for, uh, for coming out uh, and giving, uh, giving Matt and I tonight a, a little bit of your time on this, uh, on this Wednesday night. I know it's a hard time, people, um, but uh, we're making art. Um, we make art, we continue to make art, whatever else we, uh, we do. Um, it's our, uh, our stand against the darkness, right? So much for our stand against the darkness. Oh, look, look, there we go. Yeah, I think the, I think, I know the Trump and Fuhrer heard me. So, uh, so I'd like to read you the beginning of, uh, of a novella called Anchor, uh, which appeared in yet another Cthulhu anthology, um, Autumn Cthulhu. Um, it seems all horror anthologies have to have that in their, uh, their title these days. Um, I made poor Mike Davis wait for this for a long, long time. <laughs> um, and each, this is broken up into um, a number of different sections, and each section begins with a quotation uh, from one of the two poets that the story is about. And so uh, the first section begins with uh, a quotation from a poem called Odin Foresees Ragnarok by James Ogan. Fire and ruin march on heaven. Surtur brandishes his sword. Loki and his awful brood come for revenge. Who stands with me now stands in my doom. For the rest of what will be a long, long life, every October Will Ogan will dream of this night. It will be one of those dreams so vivid as to be indistinguishable from waking for all intents and purposes, he'll tell Manda, his wife, when he reveals it to her, he might as well be back at the far end of the driveway to his parents' house, standing beside his father. Although the calendar welcomed autumn a couple of weeks earlier, the trees are still holding onto a few of their leaves. The air is unusually warm. It is nighttime. His father has switched on the green lamppost beside the mailbox the one they refer to as Mr. Tumnus's lamp. Its yellow light concentrates around its top in a sphere as if the surrounding darkness is a physical medium against which it must push. To Will's 12-year-old eyes, the night seems heavier somehow, thicker, and not only because he is awake far later than he's ever been up with his dad, sleepover late. If he cranes his head back, he can see stars overhead without having to squint too much against the lamppost's glow. Tonight, his father told him, is the second night of the new moon, which no doubt contributes to the star's brightness, but he can't shake the impression that the sky looks different. The figures whose outlines the stars are supposed to mark gone, replaced by other unfamiliar arrangements. He pointed this out to dad, who raised his eyes to the heavens then lowered them without comment. The two of them haven't been at the end of the driveway for that long, but already Will's arms are tired from holding the Chinese spear, the Qiang, out in a forward guard. This isn't the waxwood version of the weapon with which he's trained at his father's studio in Wiltwick. It's the real thing, 
nine feet of polished hardwood capped with a sharpened blade. He noticed it leaning against the house beside the front steps as dad led them outside. His father carried it as they walked down and up the driveway. But once they reached the road, he held it out to Will, who said, really? Even as he took it, he never got to handle the actual weapons. Not like this. Really, Dad said, unsheathing the long curved sword, the dough, he'd slid into the belt of his robe before they exited the house. Like the Qiang, the dough was serious business, its edge razor keen, brought out only for cutting competitions at the big tournaments. His father shucked off his bathrobe. He was wearing his usual nighttime attire of old karate pants and worn t-shirt. He took the sword in both hands, squared his stance, and let the end of the blade dip into a middle guard so that it was pointing towards the woods across the road. Will followed his lead and leveled the spear in the same direction. He had no idea, could not guess what the two of them were doing there. As a rule, his dad was not prone to much in the way of erratic or unpredictable behavior, his limit being the occasional spontaneous trip to Boyce's and Wiltwick for a hot fudge sundae or milkshake. He had never roused Will from his bed in the middle of the night. It had been Will, sick or pursued by nightmares, who had hauled him out of his slumber. Sitting up in bed a short time ago, blinking sleep from his eyes, Will asked what was wrong, his voice croaking, in reply, his father told him to find his sneakers. They needed to go outside. More asleep than awake, he did as instructed, clomping downstairs to find dad at the front door, the dough in its ornate sheath in his right hand. The sight of the sword, of that sword in particular, jolted Will fully awake. His dad pushed the dough through his belt, opened the door, and stepped out into the dark. Especially once he saw the spear, Will assumed there was some kind of threat in the yard, an animal, he guessed, though one of the perverts from the boarding house at the other end of their street was also a possibility. He wasn't overly concerned which it was, too excited at being included in the defense of his house. The longer they've stood with weapons ready, however, the more mysterious their purpose has become. By now, surely an animal would have revealed itself or fled Likewise, a person. Will feels his father's concentration weighting the space around him, lending the air the same density that fills it in the run-up to a thunderstorm. It's not an entirely unfamiliar sensation, but he associates it in general with the studio when his dad is training in a new form, and in particular during the weeks immediately before his most recent black belt test, the one for third degree. Yet even the longest of those forms didn't last much beyond two minutes. And anyway, there was movement involved. Nor did his father mind if Will interrupted him as he was practicing his young. I do Tang Soo Do for you and your mother, his mantra. The art is for you, not the other way around. He's less certain how his dad would respond to a break in his focus now. When he hears the sounds coming from across the street, somewhere deep within the trees that run down the hillside there to the county road, Will is momentarily thrilled to the point of happiness. Beside him, Dad lets out the briefest sigh, and Will realizes that his father is relieved that he too has had his fill of waiting. A sense of connection, of love so fierce it causes his hands to tremble, the end of the kyang to quiver sweeps him. He readjusts his grip on the spear, 
readies it for the source of the noise advancing up the hill toward them. Branches rustle and snap. A tree cracks like a rifle shot and rushes to thud on the ground. Another tree groans as if a great weight is sliding against it. Something grunts, the deep note of a steam engine venting pressure. Bushes hiss as they drag on whatever is pushing through them. The dead leaves and pine needles that carpet the earth make a sound like sizzling as heavy, pe heavy feet shuffle closer. Before it appears between the trunks of a pair of birches as if framed in a doorway, there is a moment when Will sees the darkness beyond the trees become darker still, occluded by a shape whose outline does not make sense. He glances at his father, whose jaw has tightened. He's on the verge of demanding, what is this? When the cause of the clamor passes the birch trees and into view. It's a bear. Not one of the black bears native to upstate New York. No, this beast is the deep orange of fire overtaking wood, and larger by several orders of magnitude than any local species. Its blunt head is the size of the barrel they use for catching rain, the paws it lifts as big as the tires on his mother's Camry. The creature must weigh an actual ton. A grizzly, Will thinks. It's the only description that fits, though this bear seems beyond the dimensions of even the largest of that breed. Not to mention, an actual grizzly emerging from the woods across the street raises so many questions, he doesn't know which one to ask first. When the bear's paws touch the road, it pauses. Its head cocks to the left, as if it has noticed Will and his dad for the first time, which it may have. Will isn't sure how much attention bears pay to their surroundings. Its lips peel back from yellow teeth the length of his palm, and the bear bellows, a long, low wave of sound that Will feels all the way down to his bones. It may be the single most frightening thing he has ever heard. He wants to run, would like nothing better than to cast the spear aside and head for home as fast as his legs will carry him, which he suspects would be faster than they've run before. He can't, though, can't control any part of his body from his legs and arms, which won't move, to his lip, which won't stop trembling, to his eyes, which are dangerously close to pouring tears down his cheeks. It isn't only the bear's roar, it's the animal's very presence, which streams at them like heat from a burning building. More than at any point in his life previous to this, Will has the sense of being in a circumstance beyond his ability to handle. Will. His father's voice reaches him from a long way away. He has the impression his dad has said his name a number of times. He tries to say yes, but his mouth refuses anything more complex than, uh-huh. I want you to drop the end of the spear, not the tip, the end to the ground. Can you do that for me? Uh-huh. To his surprise, he finds he can. He lowers the butt of the spear to the driveway's packed dirt surface. Good, his father says. His voice is slightly higher, but otherwise calm. Now, if our friend over there decides to charge us, which I don't think he's going to do, but just in case, I want you to use the ground as a brace for the spear. This way, when he runs up against it, we'll have the earth helping us. Sound like a plan? Uh-huh. Words spill from him in a question. Where should I aim the point? 
Anywhere in the middle should do, Dad says. His neck would be super, but his shoulders or chest would be fine too. After you do that, after he sticks himself, I want you to get out of the way. It's too far to run back to the house, but you should be able to reach the Smith's front door. What are you going to do? I'm going to see if I can't convince this fellow to head in another direction. No, Dad. Panic of a different kind seizes Will, loosens his hold on the spear. Steady, his father says. Will regrips the Kiang, redirects it at the bear, who is watching their exchange as if it understands them. Good, his dad says. Like I said, though, I don't believe our friend is going to do anything because what he's looking for isn't here. For an instant, Will has the absurd impression that his father is speaking to the bear. The impression vanishes when the creature advances onto the road. Will digs the butt of the spear into the driveway's dirt. His dad shifts his hands on the sword's hilt ever so slightly. Easy, Dad says, and now Will is certain he's talking to the enormous animal, which has paused in the middle of the street, less than 10 feet from them. Easy, he says. The bear's eyes focus on him. Will aligns the tip of the spear with a point to the right of and slightly below the bear's head, where he feels pretty sure there's major blood vessels, like the carotid or the jugular in humans. This close, the bear's breath thunders in and out of its lungs. Its smell floods his nostrils, a pungent mix of torn vegetation, rotted meat, and urine. If it charges, Will understands, his dad is going to draw its attack, allow him a chance to spear it. Don't, he wants to say. Don't worry about me. Move in quick and strike. Do what you're always telling me to do. Don't worry about me. Standing watching his father and the bear stare at one another, the lamp at the end of the driveway casting deep shadows over the road, Will is struck by the absolute certainty that he is seeing his father in the last moments of his life. A combination of dread and acute sorrow washes through him, but he keeps the Kiang trained on the spot on the bear's neck. The bear snorts. There's something almost contemptuous in the gesture. It swings its outsized head to the right, the rest of its mountainous bulk shifting in the same direction. Slowly, it ambles up the street towards the dead end. Dad turns gradually, tracking the bear's progress with the point of his doe. Will does the same with the spear. After the bear has been swallowed by darkness, they maintain their positions listening to the tumult of its passage into the woods bordering the end of the road. Will is exhausted, hollowed out by the confrontation. His surroundings swim in and out of focus. The light for Mr. Tumnus's lamp burns brighter, as if the darkness has receded. Where the beasts stood, the space looks different, the air blacker, as if scorched by the creature's presence. At some point after the night has grown quiet, the only sound, the rush of a car speeding along the county road below. Will's father lowers his sword and turns to him. Dad's eyes are sunken, his cheeks drawn, the short hairs of his beard flecked with white. 
He looks 10 years older than he did at the beginning of the last hour. Come on, his father says. I think we can go home now. Will carries the spear back down and up the driveway. Until they're within sight of the cars parked beside the house, Dad walks with the sword unsheathed, although he leaves the point down. This is the time Will knows to ask his dad what just happened, but he cannot summon the energy for any action more complex than setting one foot in front of the other and keeping the spear from striking the ground. His father pauses by their SUV to, to slot the dough into its scabbard. Without looking at Will, he says, I don't think we need to tell your mother about this. <laughs> it's a ridiculous statement. As his parents like to say, their household runs on honesty. But Will nods anyway. He stares at the parking space to the left of the Saturn, where, until recently, his dad's friend Carson parked his truck while he was staying with them. A connection lights his brain. Before he knows what he's saying, he says, this was about Carson, wasn't it? Dad's eyebrows raise. It's confirmation enough, but he nods and says, yes, it was. Are we safe? His father is about to say, yes because that's what dads do. They reassure you, tell you everything's going to be okay, regardless of the evidence. Something he notices in Will's face, some difference, stops the word on his lips. Instead, his dad says, I'm not sure. Thank you. So that's an Autumn Cthulhu, which is a trade paperback, and you can um, buy that, um, I assume, on at Amazon, I'm guessing. Everything's on yeah, Amazon. Everything's <laughs> on Amazon. Yeah. And uh, thank you, everybody, and hope to see you all next month. Um, have another drink or a drink before you leave, and, and thank your bartenders, and thank you so much. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.